Is it anybody's first week here? I don't know if an elder camp can handle this or not. So y- y'all have come to the probably the most interesting uh, class because we have a panel discussion. Um, if our panelists will come up and we're going to run down the aisle real quick and just just a quick two sentences about yourself. I'm an interloper. An interloper? All right, we're going to start with Rodney, the most distinguished of guests. We're going to introduce ourselves. Oh, my name is Rodney Honeycutt, and my wife, Dee, and I have been And maybe just a little bit about your background. I'm an evolutionary biologist, and uh, actually evolutionary genetics, and a former professor. I'm retired now. I was at Pepperdine, Texas A&M, Harvard, several places. Can you speak up a little bit? I, I, I didn't hear you. Texas A&M, <coughs> oh, okay. uh, Harvard, and uh, Pepperdine. Oh, yeah. I'm not a scientist, everyone. Um, I'm, I have a PhD in theology, so I get to at least I get to like email the scientist about theology, which is fine. Um, I'm Lauren White. I'm uh, this guy's my husband, so that's why I keep correcting him during classes. <laughs> and I teach at Lipscomb University. I'm just finishing up my second year there. I'm Micah Redding. Uh, my background is computer science. Uh, I spend a lot of time dealing with uh, transhumanists, who are people who are, instead of looking at evolution in the past or trying to take evolution to the future, take control of it. So that's provocative and interesting from a religious and faith perspective, so that's kind of what I do. My name is Matthew Groves. I grew up outside Bristol um, as a preacher's kid, Southern Baptist. I went to William Mary for college where I was a physics major with a religion double, and I just graduated from Vanderbilt's Divinity School. And I'm Kevin Colbert. Uh, I uh, I work as an engineer. Uh, I do uh, water primarily. Um, and uh, get to get to do that both professionally and ministerially, and that's a lot of fun uh, to get to do that. And uh, like I said a little while ago, I'm just thankful that uh, that we can have a Sunday school class that talks about uh, talks about questions of science and faith. Thank everybody for coming. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to look at an argument. Okay, this is meant with no disrespect to my grandmother, but as a tool for. Um, looking at classical logic and uh, critiquing arguments. So, we have a premise, and we have a chain of reason that follows. So, committed Christians don't use instruments in worship. Instruments are used at Otter Creek, therefore, committed Christians aren't found in Otter Creek. Now, we could critique the premise, but I think it's more interesting, in this case, to critique the chain of reason, because if we look at a lot of the, a lot of the arguments that we find around... Uh, things of faith, the the premises are often agreed upon that if the atheist and many of the Christians that I grew up around, they will say, if these premises are true, then the chain of reason follows. So I think when we look at these sorts of arguments, I think it's a really good idea not to just hone in on the premises, even though premises, even though you may be uh, object to them to a certain degree, you might parse them out a different way, but it's, it's, it's more prudent to look at the chain of reason because um, the, the, the atheist and the 
well, many of the Christians I grew up on, you may call them creationists, young earth, young earth creationists, I kind of have this sort of love-hate partnership in, in these sorts of chains of reasons. So um, we're going to start with this question. Adam and Eve. No, you were going to explain the chain of reason about... Oh, you wanted to go back to this yeah. one. Oh, she wanted... I had a joke, but I was leaving out the joke. <laughs> so anyway, so instruments... You could reject this based on your a theological concern. The committed Christians don't use instruments in worship. Well, if you're here, you probably would, probably would reject that, that premise. Or you could say instruments, uh, therefore committed Christians aren't found at Otter Creek. You could say, well, there's committed Christians at Otter Creek. They're just in first service. Right. Okay, sorry. That, that's what she was wanting me to get at. I was trying to move on because I want to hear from our panel. Um, so... First argument, Adam and Eve and the common spiritual condition. Who are Adam and Eve? Argument, if evolution is true, then we didn't all descend from just two people. Therefore, Adam and Eve never existed. Thus, we do not have a common ancestor or do not all share a common sinful condition. Therefore, we don't need forgiveness. We don't need a Savior. So, panelists. <laughs> Did you want to jump in on this one? You want me to jump in on this one? <laughs> well, I don't, I hate to say it, I don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve in that sense. But you could argue, if you wanted to, from a genetic standpoint, say that maybe Adam and Eve were selected from a small group of humans for, uh, to be in the Garden of Eden when they were rejected out. That cultural part, that, that the part that made them special was transmitted to other humans, and over time it became mm -hmm. part of human culture. So maybe from a genetic So it could be a genetic bottleneck. We had a small yeah. number of humans. And so that would, trans you know, if you think about it, there are certain social behaviors in other organisms that are transmitted through populations. If you have a gene for, say, um, altruism, for instance, under certain circumstances, that altruistic behavior could become more prevalent in a population. That's an argument. Yeah, I don't know if I believe. So it, maybe there was, no. maybe there's an argument to be said that there were lots of people that were around, and these people were able to produce fertile offspring. But at some point, maybe God stepped in and breathed His Spirit into two people. Okay. Lauren? Um, my response to this would be pretty short. It would just be that I don't think that the creation account in Genesis is a literal account of a historical event. I think it's a theological account of the human situation and our relationship with God. So I, I think that we don't need common ancestors to account or to offer an account wherein we are fallen and in need of redemption. I can't agree with that. I was just throwing that out there. <laughs> I would, I would um, I, so the part of this I would question is the idea that if Adam and Eve weren't um, literal people, that therefore this means they couldn't have passed on the sinful condition to us, right? So this is, um, that seems to assume uh, a certain idea about the relationship between sin and genetics and so forth that I think um, is, is particularly strongly rejected in the Church of Christ tradition. Like, we have historically really been against that kind of an idea. I think it probably, I would, in my opinion, it's not even really the, the mainstream kind of Christian idea in terms of connecting it specifically to genetics. But, um, 
But, but we push back on that, right? Because there, there are other ways in which sin is transmitted um, in which it would make sense to say that the, that some group of people or some kind of in, initial incident in human history was the source of all of us being sinful that's not dependent on like a genetic lineage being there. I would agree with all that. Um, yeah, I think, for me at least, I don't, I don't have to think of Adam and Eve as real people um, who truly lived in a literal way to think of myself as fallen. Um, I think if you just look around, people are, people are pretty fallen, um, myself included. So you don't, I, don't, I don't feel the need to read Genesis literally. And I'm kind of in, in the same boat. I, I love I love watching arguments like that unfold because a lot of times you'll wind up in a discussion with somebody, uh, and and it kind of starts off. It, it kind of starts off with, you know, were, were Adam and Eve literal people? Uh, yes or no? Oh, you think no? Therefore, it's okay if we marry horses. And you're like, well, ooh, that escalated quickly <laughs> in, that, in that discussion. Uh, and and some, somewhere there's a there, there's a break, and that's kind of like oh therefore we don't need forgiveness, and and of course that's uh, that's that's very very false, and I think that's one of the things that gets wrestled with through the arc of scripture is that things started and things weren't the way that they needed to be, and we're kind of all in this together, and what can we do to to help reconcile things to the way that they ought to be that we think maybe in the past uh, in 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 some version of the Garden of Eden. But th this topic is one of those that I think is, that, that science adds a great deal of comfort to me theologically, which is that the Genesis account was written in the absence of humans understanding DNA. And now we've got this code out there that shows that not only do, do, do you and I have the same little strands of double helixes that, 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 uh, that look the same and replicate the same way, but we do with all of the, it's not identical, but a large majority of it is identical with every living thing on the, on the planet. Um, and it's the, 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 the scientific explanation of we are all related is a very, very comforting one to me that points to a creator that wants all of his creation to, to be connected. Anybody want them to parse anything that they set out a little bit more? All right, we'll move on to the next discussion question. Are humans unique? Are they created in the image of God, the Imago Dei? If evolution is true, then we have a common ancestry, common ancestry with other forms of life. We can't exactly say when human life began. Therefore, we are no different than other animals. We are um, just following our instincts. We'll let the biologists start again. <laughs> I think we do share a common ancestry with other animals. It's just that, uh, and I do believe in a tree of life and a hierarchy, and that all of life is interrelated in some way. That doesn't really bother me because if you think about we're a different species from other species, and there are characteristics about humans that make us unique. Uh, when I was in Chile one time, I was sitting around with a bunch of non-Christians, non and they asked me what makes human beings unique, and I said. What comes off the top of my head is we're probably the only species that thinks about the fact that we're going to die someday. And we actually contemplate the fact that there's an afterlife. If you look at modern humans, when modern humans arose, they started burying their dead with artifacts and things that are predicting they're going somewhere after they die. 
and their and death is terminal. And so to me, that's a very unique characteristic that we have, the fact that we can think about the past, the current, current, recent, and future is something that I don't think other animals think about like that. So there are a lot of unique characteristics that make us human and still make us part of the animal kingdom. I don't have anything profound to add on this, I don't think. Um, I would just want to point out that what people have always pointed out since the, you know religions began, which is that um, we do share traits with animals in that we are governed by instinct to a certain degree, but then we're also governed by other um, kind of ways of navigating the world. So we're also governed by love, by creativity, uh, by the desire to master our instincts. You know, so that's what sets us apart from animals. And I would say, <clears throat> from the biblical point of view, it's what gives us a responsibility in relation to the creation. So as united with the you know, animal and, and plant life, biological life, but also uh, charged with the task of, of cultivating it, of caring for it, of governing it well. Yeah, yeah I would say, um, when I, growing up as, uh, uh, as a young earth creationist and, and um, all that, this was always the argument that made no sense to me whatsoever. The idea that common descent changed something about our humanity, I was like, that's obviously wrong because the, the Bible tells us we have common descent. Like, what do we come from? We're made from the dust. What else is made from the dust? Everything else, right? That's, that's literally the, the story. So it's not that, oh, you know, the, the, the objections like, oh, you're saying that we're descended from apes, therefore we're not significant. Bible says we're descended from something far lower than apes, right? Like, it always said that. It says we come from the dust, but what makes us distinct is not um, where we came from. It's what God imbues us with, right? And so we can absolutely affirm common descent. We can absolutely affirm our materiality. We can absolutely affirm our instinctual nature and all these these biological processes that exist in us and also say but God put in us his image um, which I, I see much like that so I would agree with that for sure um, you gotta be a little careful saying this is exactly what makes people unique because like I grew up in farm country right and pigs are really smart like I don't know like we have a dog I'm sorry Sarah our dog's really dumb she's cute she's not very bright right I feel very confident saying I'm smarter than my I feel very confident saying at five years old, Matthew was smarter than his dog. Pigs? Five-year-old? I don't know. Pigs are pretty sharp, right? Smart. So you want to be careful saying this exactly is what makes humans unique. Language is what makes humans unique. Turns out whales have pretty complicated language. So you want to be careful saying this right here. But pigs don't have existential crises, right? And don't like ponder our own place in the universe. Um, so I would definitely agree that we are what makes us unique. God is what makes us unique. And, and we won't debate the theology of dogs versus pigs. Uh, now. They won't either. Which yeah. is <laughs> uh, but that, that would be uh, that would be an interesting class that, uh, that will probably anger half half the half the crowd. Um, but uh, you know, in the in the in the creation account in in the Genesis account, there's really only three things that were created. That's the only time that verb is used. God created everything heavens and the earth. God created life and then God created humans. But every, everything else on the days, everything else regardless of the mechanics of what was happening 
Everything else was formed or separated, uh, but the only times that God jumped in and he said, I'm going to create something from nothing, I'm going to create living things versus not living things, and then I'm going to create humans from those living things too. And I, I like that I like that account a lot, and I think that's very, very helpful. That, that even X thousand years ago, there was an acknowledgement that we, we, are, we are kind of like animals, but there's something different about us, that, that, uh, that we do have the ability to, to, to question things and to uh, appreciate our Creator. Um, but I think one thing that, that, that makes us unique um, as, as humans is our ability to actually feel, we can look at uh, a, a volcano erupting in New Zealand and people dying from that and feel something about that. Whereas I don't think that pigs can do that or dogs can do that. Um, and we can look at people suffering in this country or that country and, and genuinely there's no biological reason for us to feel sadness about that. You know, there's no natural selection explanation for the fact that we are sad that people in another place that we're never going to meet are suffering, and yet we do. And I think that that's a call back to the common descent that we have as creations of God. So, uh, just camp out here for just a little longer for the second time we have to move on, but what exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God? And not everybody has to answer this. I, so this is, sounds flippant, but I would say it's imagination, and it's that's what allows us to think about the, the past and the future and, and other places on earth and, and things that we've never seen and, and all this kind of stuff, and that's what fills us with dread and fear, right? We, we are afraid of things that we have never experienced, and that imagination um, is, so it's the source of, of everything that's Incredible about us, all of our creativity, all of our potential, all of our technological and scientific ability, our ability to think about the fact that those things out there are actually bigger than the earth, but they look like tiny dots in the sky and like all that kind of stuff. Um, but that I think is connected with this idea of the image of God, right? It's it's that we are imaging creatures. We are creatures who imagine and we. Um, in that way mirror what is happening out there in the abstract into the world around us. Um, so, so I think that's that's the core of what we're doing. It go, does go back to that image of God. Kind of, kind of in connection with that, the, the tradition theologically of the image of God is one that's, there's a lot of different, there's a lot of debate around it. Um, people used to literally ask, you know, image of God, does that mean physically? Like we have some sort of physical traits, you know, which seems, I mean, kind of ridiculous to us probably, but um, but the, I think the kind of going along with what Mike is saying, what we see in um, the creation narrative again, and then throughout the Old Testament, is the call to be imagers. So um, we are kind of the images who image. So you know, one of the things that makes our creation account unique is that rather than our God creating. The world is a place where um, God was going to rule over slaves. He created instead people to kind of govern in the temple. Um, and so, and what temples are filled with are images of gods. But Israel was unique in that it didn't create graven images of their God. They worshiped a God that could not be imaged because God already made his image, which is us. So um, 
I think we are to image God in the world the same way that, you know, we were, we're sort of, instead of there being idols, we're like the living, the people who point creation to God. So images who create more images, like that's kind of the idea. You order the creation in such a way to give God glory. Awesome. All right. Next. God only works through miracles. <coughs> Argument. If evolution is true, then there are random processes that led to the development of life. Therefore, God does not guide or direct the process, and so there are no miracles. Thus, at best, we are stuck with deism. I guess this could be one of the premises, but um, this idea of deism is that God might have created, but he just wound it up, and then the natural laws are holding it together. So where would you, uh, where would you take uh, issue with this chain of reason? Matthew? Yeah, I would throw out there as a... Just jump right in. Yeah. I, I think it's a myth that learning more about how something works has to reduce your sense of wonder about it. Um, I remember, like, in my physics classes, like, towards the, the first year or so, like, you understand how the, the laws of motion work, and it's, it's, it's somehow... <coughs> At the beginning, it's a little disenchanting, like, oh, this is how everything works, and I guess I've got it all figured out. But the further you press into it, the deeper the sense of mystery and wonder develops back again. So there's this, um, uh, Werner Heisenberg is a famous physicist, and he has this quote that the first gulp um, from the cup of natural science might make you an atheist, but God is waiting for you at the bottom. And that's really how I think about science in general, is... If we're Christians, we care about creation because God made it, so we should care about learning everything we can about it. And the more you learn about how nature works, the more you learn about the God who made nature. Um, so I think there's a, a quote I like, just because you can understand how something works, it doesn't mean it stops being a miracle. And sunlight turns into, through photosynthesis and time, it turns into grapes that we drink as grape juice. And that's, that's a miracle when you think about it that way. I, yeah, I, I would want to jump on that, and I think our definition of miracle is um, a non-biblical definition for the most part, and it comes out of, um, after the kind of scientific revolution, we started thinking about how do we make sure that we protect religion from science, and we came up with this idea that occasionally God stops science, says, here you go no further, I'm going to do something different, and then, then kind of resume science. And I don't think that's the assumption of the Bible at all. And I think that leaves us with a lot of, of problems. And so I, I, like when I think about what the biggest miracle of Scripture is, other than the resurrection of Christ, I'm going to say it's the, the parting of the Red Sea, right? The Exodus story. And it's interesting to me how Exodus describes the parting of the Red Sea. This is this preeminent miracle. It's God doing this, right? And Exodus 14 and 21 says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind. Right. So the account of how this miracle happened includes natural forces at work in the creative process. And I think, you know, if we if we have this idea that a miracle is the um, the like stopping of physical laws, then we miss what God is actually doing and the way that God actually works in the world. That is what leads us to deism, is when we say that God can't work miracles without stopping natural law. I think that's anti-biblical. I think it leads us to a bad point. 
I was actually thinking about virgin birth. I was just talking to Dee about it um, because that would be considered a miracle. That's kind of a stumbling block for scientists especially. But I happened to work on a grasshopper in Australia that had virgin birth. They didn't have a male. So there you go. There are species. <laughs> so this is a natural process, right? I think I think we're on uh, uh, theologically shaky ground. Anytime we say God only works through, you know, anytime we put the word God and only together, I think we're we're in a pretty pretty tenuous spot in in uh, in our uh, in in our argument. I guess the only thing I would add is that this model would not also be accounting for other means of understanding God. Um, so spiritual perception, for example, the kind of understanding you develop out of a life given over to spiritual disciplines and sanctification. And we say that um, Israel had the eyes to see the sea being held back as a miracle rather than just a purely natural event because they had a relationship with the God that they believed was holding the water. So, I'd like to just comment on the randomness part too because that kind of is a little bit misleading because not all processes in evolution are random. You may have a mutation that would be a random mutation. When you talk about natural selection, that's not random. There, there's, there are some individuals that are going to be may pass their genes on and some don't because they have an advantage of some kind. That's not random. So I think that's yeah. kind of a misleading yeah, for sure. thing. So I agree with that, and I'll throw in something that's very... Uh, this probably won't make a lot of sense to, to most people, but from a computer science perspective, Alan Turing and defining what a universal computer is, um, what is explainable in terms of the laws of computation, the one thing that cannot be explained is randomness. Uh, so they have to posit in computer science that if there is a source of randomness in the system, it comes from an oracle, something outside of the system. And so this is the one thing we don't know how to actually model in a really good way. And I think maybe we've been misled to think that like, oh, order is evidence for the, the existence of God. Well, maybe randomness is evidence for the existence of God. Yeah. Yeah. Uh one thing, coming from a scientific background, you think, well, yeah, that, that might be possible, like the east wind, and I've seen a, a modeling, like a, a water modeling, I don't know if you've seen it, where they show uh, like a cross-section of the Red Sea and how the wind might have pushed it back, and that's a sample and all this. <clears throat> but if you granted, yeah, that could happen scientifically, I'm always draw, drawn back to the timing. Yeah. How many times has this ever happened before? How many times has it happened since? And what are the chances that that physical manifestation would happen at the absolute correct time? And that that leads me to God, obviously. The probability of the likeliness of it never happening. Anybody else want to talk about miracles to ask our panelists any more questions? That's it on miracles. Has anybody ever experienced a miracle in here? I mean, personally? Yeah. I did. I became a Christian. That was a miracle to me. <laughs> he said he became a Christian. It was a miracle to him. 
That's, yeah, I mean, that'd be a transformation, but I'm talking about... As a matter of fact, though, that, but it is a transformation. I think one of the greatest miracles I've ever seen is to see a person who does not believe in God, and when God, when God comes into their life, the transformation that takes place in that person is truly a miracle, as far as I'm concerned. That's the basis of Francis Collins's book, The Language of God. It's the story of his transformation. Well, a miracle is something that we can't explain, correct? It's something occurs and there's not a scientific explanation for it. Would that be a good description of it? And if that's so, then obviously Jesus created miracles. We all agree on that, that science could not explain. The scientists came the day after Lazarus was raised from the dead, and there wouldn't be a scientific explanation for that. Yeah. So, you know, like, I was taught, gr growing up in a conservative church of Christ home, I was taught that uh, the love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, addressed this clearly. When that which is perfect comes, the imperfect, these gifts and these miracles shall disappear. And it's really interesting because it seems so obvious that which is perfect is not the Holy Bible. I'm not saying the Bible's not perfect, okay? I'm saying that which is perfect comes is when Christ returns. So it, it seems to me that Paul is saying miracles are going to keep happening. What does that look like? The transformation of life? Um, I don't, I don't know if the Red Sea's parting, but you know, I think the intervention of humans, uh, the intervention of God in humans' life is a great example. But we, when we consider the the idea that God created the earth, making that claim is saying something that something exists outside of the temporal world. And if something exists outside of the temporal world, I don't know why anybody would have an a real objection to God um, intervening. So I put forth in the, the week that I talked about uh, presuppositions and presuppositional apologetics, I talked about how the earth, one of the presupp Christian scientific presuppositions, if the earth is orderly and intelligible, um, meaning we can do science on, on, on the earth, things are repeatable, um, it is also... Um, it's also, there's, a, there's an element that says, I'm sorry, I'm going to look back at my notes real quick. <coughs> I just had a brain malfunction. Hold on. <coughs> oh, yeah, indeterministic. That's where I was getting at. So the, in, the deterministic God, which some, some Christians, I, I think, believe in a deterministic God, if, if, it's, if it's indeterministic, he's also with, able to step in to the step back into the scene and intervene. So, I would, in terms of definition of miracle, I, I think a miracle is something that's uh, improbable and uh, and meaningful, and that's the that's the core thing. And and um, so yeah, the Red Sea parting at the right time, or you know whatever happening, it. It's, it's meaningful to the people who are involved in it, right? It has a huge meaning. It means that God's here, God's caring for these people, this is what God is doing. Um, 
and and the thing that's yeah it's is unlikely it's really rare and if you think about what creates improbable meaningful events in the world well that's a person right that's what people do we figure out the a way to make really really improbable things happen um, the idea that that electricity flows through the walls and doesn't burn the place down and you know like all this kind of stuff is something incredibly improbable given like natural processes, but when a person intervenes. And so I think it's just saying a person is at work, right? And in this case, when we talk about miracles, we're talking about the person of God. All right, last question. The creator is good. If evolution is true, then things have been dying since life began. Therefore, creation could not have been very good, good and very good. Therefore, the Creator cannot be good. We're going to let our theologians start. <laughs> I think it's a good idea. <laughs> um, well, the, the first response to that, I think, is that um, in the Genesis account, we're told that God says it is good, but not that it is perfect. And so that um, the creation is made for a dynamic emergence into a greater order and perfection. And humans were meant to play the key role in uh, partnering with God and moving it towards that. Subdue. And yeah, to subdue the chaos um, that was outside the garden. So in Hebraic thinking, the sea and darkness both signal chaos. And those things were both ordered in God's creative act, but not totally uh, dispelled from creation. So uh, when humans rejected their vocation, the invitation to partner with God and moving towards increased order, um, that actually exacerbated the chaos. And, I mean, Romans 8 gives us a pretty clear picture of the fact that the creation itself suffered as a result of that and in ways that are mysterious to us, and we can't really say exactly what it was like before. Um, but it seems that Eve even knew what death was already when the serpent said, you won't you know, God, she said, God said, we will surely die um, if we eat of the fruit and the serpent says you won't. I mean, that indicates that she knows what that means in some regard. And something I read recently that I found interesting is uh, one way of translating the surely die is um, that in dying we will die is a way of saying that. So she had some concept of death already, but there would be some new... So in some sense, death would have been taken on this new kind of weight or significance that she didn't quite understand um, is, that, is a possible indication there. But um, the way I make sense of it is that clearly death is not intended, is not the intended destiny of creation. That's what the resurrection tells us. Um, that's what the image in Revelation tells us, where God uh, wipes away every tear and where um, all chaos is finally expelled. And so... Uh, I think we know that God is good because God has come to be with us. God has sent us his son, the spirit. Um, God is guiding all things to this good end. I trust that. So I believe that we played a part in the creation getting as messed up as it is, as, as pain-filled as it is now. Matthew? Anything there? No, don't feel obligated. I don't think so. Uh, stand up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I, I look at the creation a little bit differently in the sense that it's the beauty of it, the fact that it is replenishing all the time. There's this this natural cycle to life. Yeah, there's death, but then it comes back again. It's, let's think about it right now. The trees are dormant, but they're coming back in the spring. And so there's this, 
that's the beauty of it. If I were, if I were actually going to create, uh, say, uh, my own creation of life, it would not look like that at all. It would just be a bunch of little stick figures sitting in a terrarium and not moving around, right? But our creation, that's the beauty of it to me. That shows a lot of love for a creator to, to just to create something that's just replenishing all the time. It's, that's just remarkable to me. I can break it down into species and biology and cells and all that kind of stuff, but still, if you look at it, it's just a marvel. And I can't imagine a God being bad who can do that. In the, in the story that goes along with the creation. Right, right. Uh, share the story about the Good Friday service. Stan. Huh? Stan. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> What's it Oh, never mind. Sorry. <laughs> she doesn't want to share. I don't know. Nobody's talking well, about Well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, hey, we're, we're at the end of time, but we do, we do, we can go five minutes over. If anybody has any questions, now you're, now's your chance to ask the panelists. Don't ask me. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Gary. Second law of thermo says that the entropy or disorder mm -hmm. of the universe is increasing. Irreversibly, how do we how do we explain events like this in which the order of our understanding is in apparent violation? I think that's a great question for Rodney. Um, I asked for him me. That, yeah. I asked him that question after that exact question after class one day. He gave a satisfactory. Uh, well, I mean, I think energy is constantly coming back into the system. There, there was a, uh, actually a professor that wrote a book about evolution and entropy. And I think that the difference is, is, is energy is constantly coming back into to the system in the sense that, um, and that's why things don't just decay and come down to the lowest common denominator. I, and I would just say that maybe God's the reason why there's a biology. On the physics there, um, it's a, uh, it depends on your scale. So a large scale um, increase in energy is impossible over time, really. Like this pencil, I just gave this pencil a lot of potential energy, right? Mm -hmm. So if your frame view is just the pencil, then oh my gosh, magical energy just entered the system. But if you zoom out, that's what the law was talking about. In a larger scale. So, in the grand sense of the universe, entropy is increasing, even if it's not here on Earth. So, an open versus a closed system is what you're saying? There are yes. closed subsystems. Yeah, sure. And that was part of my. Um, Part of my argument that I was trying to give that I didn't so eloquently offer is that it's not a closed system. I mean, God is part of the system. He's outside the system pulling it together. I read an article, uh, I had the same question, Darian, and uh, it put out that thinking actually increases entropy. So actually the pursuit of knowledge increases entropy, yeah. which is on, on your control volume, it's, it's very small in, in the synapses of the brain. But uh, it made sense to me. Anybody else? One more, maybe. Nope. Everybody's ready to go get their kids. <laughs> hey, it's been fun, guys. Glad y'all been able to make it. <laughs>